Every Friday, I get to uh, hang out with my kids, uh, the three of them, Haddon, Gracie, and Eden, and uh, so my wife Kristen can get uh, some time to herself. She gets a few hours, and uh, she gets to, you know, run errands or grocery shop or do whatever she wants to do or spend time with Jesus, and so it's a fun little rhythm, and I get to explore and get just kind of one-on-three time with my kids, and so I remember a couple years ago, uh, Kristen had left, and it was just Gracie and Haddon at the time, and Haddon was like six months old, so picture like cute Haddon, but like just smaller, chubbier, and just didn't move at all. And so that's Haddon. And, uh, and I was like, well, I want to take him to the Children's Museum, which is the best, right? But I wanted to shower first. And so I was like, okay, so I put on, you know, Sing for Gracie or, or, or something, some other movie or Frozen for the 9,000th time. And so Gracie's got Sing. She's really, she's excited. And then I grab Haddon. I'm looking at him like, what do I do with you? And so I set him right at the base of the, of the bathroom door. And, um, and I grab his favorite toys and I like kind of prop him up. And then I go like, like I go in there, I sneak in, and I hop in the shower. And the moment I close the curtain, he starts like screaming, crying. Okay, and I like peek my head out. I'm like, buddy, I'm right here. Like, dad's right here. You don't have to worry. Like, it's gonna be okay. And then he kind of calms down. He plays with his toys, whatever. And then I like slowly sneak back, close the curtain, go to shower, and he starts bawling, crying again. And I'm like, I'm trying to talk to him with behind the curtain like I am right here Haddon can you not you know and he's just not having it and so needless to say in order for me to take shower I had to uh there's water everywhere okay it just like that's what happened and we definitely damaged the floors but that's okay uh anyways um and and so it was just like this this wild moment but um researchers have found that at eight months old um the average kind of child develops what's called what's called object permanence object permanence. Uh, teachers probably know this phrase, um, but it is, it's the ability cognitively to understand that just because you can't see something anymore doesn't mean it doesn't exist any longer. Or just because you can't see it doesn't mean it went really, really far away. So cognitive, or, or for that ability, this, um, this object permanence for Haddon would be that he could understand that when I closed the curtain, I hadn't left him. I, I was still there. I was, just be, I was just behind a curtain. He couldn't see me in the same way he did when it was open. Does that make sense? And, and so I, I think that for Christians, we've got to develop uh, or we haven't developed object permanence when it comes to our relationship with God right? Like there, there are moments when it seems like he's, he's just right in front of us. Like it's, he, we just grab him, you know? When we're out in creation, experiencing the beauty of all of God's hands and what he's done, when we're, you know, when we're just like in the word, it feels so vibrant and alive. We're like, man, this is amazing. It feels living and active. When we're worshiping as a family, like when Naomi was leading Lean Back, like I just was like, this is, you know, it's like, God, you're right there, you know? When you're experiencing blessing in your life and new exciting things and all that, it feels like he's right there, right? And then there are moments when the curtain closes and it seems like God's light years away. When, when, when suffering comes, when the worst moments of your life hit, when the tears won't stop coming, when you can't get out of bed, when you, when you just feel defeated, when your faith is faltering, where God seems distant, where you're questioning if he is good, when you're wondering if he loves you, when you're convinced that he really has left you alone. And in those moments, that, that's this, this, this gap that we have with this object permanence where we just feel like God's gone. And so this is how the greatest in the chapter in the Bible ends is by Paul developing in us object permanence when it comes to God. Listen, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can tear you from him. And so the main point this morning through these last verses to finish Romans 8 is that you can't, um, you can't slip 
or be ripped from the grip of God. You, you can't slip or be ripped from the grip of God. And so if you got your Bibles, Romans 8 is where we're, we're going to be uh, to finish these last uh, few verses. But I want you to notice that at the end of Romans 8, it, it crescendos. The last section, the last couple of weeks we've been spending, has crescendoed with five questions and five subsequent glorious answers. So the five questions have been, you know, starting in verse 31, who, who could be against us? Verse 32, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is there anything God wouldn't give us? Number three, who, or, which is the, verse 33, who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 34, who is to condemn? So these four questions. And the fifth and final question that Romans 8 crescendos with is who shall separate us from the love of God? Okay, but I want you to notice if you look at these verses and these five questions, the first four questions were asked and answered in the same verse. So the content of it was that Paul could ask a question like, who, who could condemn us? And he could answer it with one single verse in it to say, it's God who justifies. But in our last question that we're talking about this morning, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? He spends five verses on it. Five verses. Where the other ones, he didn't even spend five verses to answer four different questions, but he spends five on this one question. Why? Because it's that important of an answer. And it's that difficult of an answer to internalize and to really believe. So this is significant. He's going to spend the last portion of this crown jewel in Romans to answer this last question, who shall separate us from the love of God? Or in other words, is there any way that we could slip or be ripped from the grip of God? And so uh, first thing, let's read verses uh, 35 and 36. Paul goes, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That's our fifth question. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it's written for your sake... We're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So the first thing I want us to look at, the first idea, is that you, you can't be ripped from the grip of God. You, you, you just, you can't be ripped from the grip of God. But I want you, if you look again at verse 35, what's odd about it to me is he says, the question is, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? But then his examples of these things that could separate us, or as the things we think about are all what's, tribulation, distress. He doesn't give a long list of who could separate us. He gives a long list of what we think could separate us. So, and why would he say what rather than who? Well, because there's a who behind all the what. There's someone that's enacting all of this what and hopes to rip us from the grip of God. And so in Job chapter one, Satan goes to God and says, hey, I know you've got, um, I know you've got Job, and I know he's faithful in the midst of all these people that aren't. And I know he loves you. But the only reason Job actually loves you is because you've been so good to him. You, you, you've put a hedge around his life. You've protected him. You've guarded him. You've given all these good things. And so he really doesn't love you. He just loves the things you've given him. But if you were to take those away, watch Job's heart go hard towards you. Watch, watch him be, be, uh, just be done with you. And so for some reason, God goes, okay, test your theory. You, 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 can go, you can go affect Job and take those things away and watch him still remain faithful. And so Satan goes, and I, in the same day, and probably as I'm reading it, the same hour, all of his resources are gone. Like all of his cattle and camels and whatever, I mean, sheep and all those things, oxen, they all die. And then simultaneously, all of his kids die in the, in the same moment, like this random crazy accident. He loses everything, everything he has, everyone he has, aside from his wife himself. And then in this crazy moment that I can't even internalize or understand, he blesses God. After all this happening, he goes, yeah, you, you give and, and you take away. And 
and, and I'll bless you. It's just this bizarre thing. So what was Satan trying to do by bringing these things to, against Job? To, to test him, to see him turn his back to God, to go, the only reason you're faithful to him is because you've give, you've, he, you have all this good stuff, but he doesn't. Job remains faithful to God. How? Because you can't be ripped from the grip of God. Ephesians 6, verses 11 and 12 says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So that's Ephesians 6. There's these schemes that the devil has. There's this playbook that he has in his back pocket that plays he uses against us. And verse 35 in ours is explaining what those schemes are. Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, right? So tribulation, bad things happening, right? Distress, our response in anguish to those bad things happening. Um, Persecution, challenges because of our faith in Jesus. Famine, nakedness, that's poverty and struggle. Dangerous sword, that's evil. And, and he's saying none of those things can separate us. Now, I want to be clear, though. This doesn't mean that Satan is behind every tough day you have. Like, I just want to be clear about that. Like, sometimes it's just a, it's just a hard day right? It doesn't mean that he's the one that caused every car accident or every, or he planned every overdraft of your bank account. It doesn't mean that Satan is the one who um, made you lose your job. Even though he may not have made all those things to happen, he is surely trying to use all those things against you. So to say it another way, uh, Satan hasn't willed every bad thing in your life, but he is trying to wield every bad thing against your life. He sees a tragedy in your life. He sees when you, when you get that that the bad news, the phone call, you're just, that your, your heart sinks. And it's like my dog underneath my table waiting for food to drop. And he pounces on that moment and goes, boom, there's a moment. They're susceptible. There's a moment and I want to attack. This is his scheme. It's his playbook. It's how he works. Um, and so I need you to know you have, you have a real enemy that loves to attack at strategic times. Uh, so I, I think it's important for us to understand uh, the temptation correlation um, that there's a real connection to the timing and the intensity of temptation in your life. It's not just random. It's not just like, yeah, I kind of had a hard season, and then it was just this, or I had a hard day. Like, it's actually intentional um, in those moments. So when, when we started following Jesus, uh, there was a subconscious belief in all of us that it would be easier than it really is, or that whatever we struggled with we wouldn't struggle with this bad after we follow Jesus because after all, we have his Holy Spirit, right? Like moving in us, transforming us, convicting us. And yet to our surprise, walking with Jesus is harder than we ever thought it would be. It's more glorious and beautiful, but it's like, I feel like I'm sinning more than I ever have. And I feel like I'm struggling. And I think on one part, it's because you're actually convicted and you realize that it's sin. But the other reason is because Satan loves to attack God's people. Think about uh, in Matthew chapter three, Jesus gets baptized. It's this amazing moment. God declares over all his people when Jesus is going public with his ministry, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. John the Baptist has all these followers. He's this, dude, this gnarly dude. And he's like, hey, this is, this is Jesus. He's the, he's the lamb of God that's gonna take away our sins. He's the Messiah we've been waiting for. It's this amazing, huge moment. And guess what they do? Guess, how, guess what happens after Jesus gets baptized? You think they go to the lake, ride some jet skis and cater in Chick-fil-A? No, he gets tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days. Like this crazy, weird, like what is it? After this huge mountaintop moment, that's what happens next? Yeah. And, and remember what God spoke over Jesus in his baptism? This is my son. This is, this is your identity. And what does Satan question Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew 4? 
or if you're really the son of God. He questions his identity. You see the strategy in that. And so we don't get any other hint that Satan tempted Jesus directly like this in, in throughout Scripture. But he decides to make his move right here to Jesus. Why? Because it's strategic, and he has to be strategic. See, God is, um, he's all like the omnis, like omni, omnipotent, which means he has an unlimited amount of power. He doesn't get tired. He's omniscient, which means he knows all things. He's omnipresent, which means he can be all places at one time. And sometimes we put, take those attributes of God, and we place them onto Satan, like thinking that, oh, yeah, he's got unlimited amount of power and resource and ability. But he doesn't. He's limited. And so with his limited resources and time and energy, he has to focus them strategically. He has to be thoughtful. He can't just kind of do everything. And so he gives a particular attention to certain things that would be strategic. And so for Jesus, he decides to tempt Jesus right after his big baptism. Why? Because he wants to knock him off course. Because this is the moment. If he's going to stop, whatever else is going to happen, this is the moment of susceptibility. He's hungry. He's away from everybody. He's alone. This is the time to attack. And if you look at the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8, Jesus says that the first seed that lands in the soil, uh, or that lands, is taken up, snatched immediately by Satan. So it's this idea that Satan loves and emphasizes on people who have just heard the gospel. He doesn't want that to sink in and bear fruit and sprout. And so that's the temptation correlation. Uh, when I was in college, I'm sure I'm not the only one who's done this, but when I was in college, I just... I believe the lie that when I graduated, I, I would stop struggling with this or that, right? It's like, yeah, yeah, I know I'm struggling now, but, but I'm in college, so there's maybe that. But then when I graduate and I'm in like an adult, then I'm going to be done with that. And then I graduated college, and guess what? Still struggle with this or that. And then I thought, you know what, though? I'm going to come on staff soon with City Light Church in Omaha. And then when I go on staff with a church, because people on staff with church don't struggle, right? Then I'll, then I'll be really, really good, right? And I'll, it'll be great. And then I got on staff, and I was still struggling. And then, and then I was like, okay, but, but, when I, but when I become a pastor, because pastors are, you know, they're, they've got their stuff together, then, then I won't struggle with this or that. And then I became a pastor, and I'm telling you, it feels like temptation is harder than it ever has been. It feels like the pressure is on more than it ever has been. And, and it makes sense if you actually think about it. Like, like if, you, if you process this, if Satan hard presses me when I was in college as a junior at Wesleyan leading a Bible study, and he presses me and I fail— that affects like 12, 12 dudes that I was leading, you know, and that's okay. If he hard presses me now and I fail, thousands of people are affected. And people that have been a part of City Light and or, or, or are currently, my, my wife and my three kids are affected. Like, so you, you have to understand there's this, like the reward for your head in hell goes up as your leadership grows, as you develop a family, as you uh, grow in new positions of leadership at work, as you, whatever, the more you have to lose, the more Satan has the gain. That's the temptation correlation. And he's going, man, I want you. And, and it's like, not that you know, temptation isn't real in college. It is. But don't believe the lie that somehow it'll fade. So I'm just saying, don't believe the lie that once you turn 30 or once you turn 50 or once you turn 70, that'll just be gone. Don't believe the lie that once you get married or once you have kids that the struggle will be gone. It just isn't. Satan's gonna continue to attack. and It'll be strategic with those things. There's a temptation correlation. And verse 36 explains this. It draws the same thing out. It goes, uh, verse 36, as it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So this uh, 36 is quoting from Psalm 44 in the Old Testament. 
And you should just go read Psalm 44 this week if you want to dive deeper into these last verses. But the entire psalm is God's people wondering why he isn't helping them in war. They're like, hey, I remember what you did to the Egyptians, you know, I remember what you did with the, the Syrians, but why aren't you helping us now? And what's odd about Psalm 44 is they explain, God, we've been faithful to you. We, we've loved you. We've cared for you. We've kept your covenant. We haven't done anything wrong, and yet you're not helping us, and you've helped these other people who have broken your covenant. What's going on it doesn't make sense. So here's a couple of verses from Psalm 44. All this has come upon us, though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with a shadow of death. So Paul pulls in Psalm 44 as a reminder to us that suffering and temptation and struggle come to people who love God. In fact, the bad things that are happening aren't happening because we've been bad. Sometimes God's people are suffering because we've been faithful, not because we've been rebellious. In other words, suffering and temptation and struggle aren't punishments from God wanting you to know that you've been really bad. But they're sometimes reminders and proof that you've actually been faithful to him in following him. So to know our temptation, our knee-jerk reaction when something bad happens is to assume God's mad at us or that we did something bad and he's punishing for us. That's not the case. You can see Psalm 44. We've been faithful. And we look at verse 34 and go, Jesus is fighting for us. He's interceding for us. John 10, 28, Jesus confidently says, no one's gonna snatch you from my hand. It's like this. It's like this father's just like, there's nobody that can take you from my hand. I promise you that. And so this is the point Paul is making. Uh, Satan can't take you from the hand of God, right? You are secure in the sovereign hands of your Savior. He continues on to prove his point. Look at verses 38 and 39. He says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God uh, in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so not only can you not be ripped from the grip of God, but you also can't slip from the grip of God. Um, a couple years ago, I was at a retreat uh, with some the City Light pastors. There's a handful of us. And there was a, a pastor that was leading us through this like soul care devotional time. And he asked the question, and he said, I want you guys to think about, is there anything that could happen in your life that would make you stop following Jesus? And the question was rooted in Luke, in Luke 8 with the parable of the sower. We talked about how Jesus or how Satan snatched the seed. That was the first soil. Well, the second soil is on the rocks. And it gives this idea that it's someone who seems to have believed in Jesus, um, but then a time of testing comes and they fall away. The heat comes, the persecution comes, suffering comes, and they fall away. So that was his question. He's like, are you, are you in that soil? Like, is there anything in your life that could happen that would make you go, God, I'm done? I just, I can't. I can't do it. And he was making us ask, ask the hard question. And to be honest, my initial knee-jerk reaction was if something bad or inappropriate happened to my wife or Gracie, uh, Eden wasn't born yet, but Eden. If something like, you know, tragic like that, I want to be careful with kids in the room, but something happened like that, I think that I would, uh, I think it'd be, and I told the guys just totally raw, I hope I'd cling to Jesus, but I just don't know. You know, I just want to be candid. And it was pastors in a circle answering it with small, small groups. And it wasn't like, oh, here's my pastoral answer with the Bible verse. It was just like real raw, this is what I think. And, um, and I don't know how to respond, but what about you? 
Like if I'm just gonna ask you that question, like is there anything in your life that could happen that would make you stop believing in Jesus? Is there anyone in your life that could get sick or be hurt or be abused or die that would make you turn your back to him? They would convince you that he actually isn't good. It's a tough question, isn't it? And I thought this week, what if we reverse that question back to God? Like, we're, if we're instead of, I mean, I think it's important for us to ask, is there anything that could happen that would make us turn away from you? But the same question back to God, is there anything that we could do that could make you turn from us? You know, is, there, is, is it a long list of just this accumulation of, of sexual sin? Or is it, um, is, it, is it stop reading our Bibles? Or is it not feeling bad about our sin? Or is it not coming to church anymore? Or, or is it burning a Bible? Or is it saying, I blaspheme the Spirit? Or is there anything that we could do that God would just go, you're done? I've just, I've just given up. That's the final straw. I'm just done. And I think that if we were to like word vomit on God, all those questions like, God, I wonder if this happened. I don't know if I'd follow you or, or, or I wonder if, if I did this, maybe you, you'd, you'd give up on me. And all that, all those questions and all the concerns we have, I think if we were to ask him that, he would just calmly and confidently go, I think you need to read Romans 8, 38 and 39 one more time. Right? I think you need to read Romans 8. For I am sure, Paul says, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And we'd go, okay, I read it, but, and he'd go, no, 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 no. John 10, 28, no one can snatch you from my hand. Even you can't snatch you from my hand. Even you can't slip from my hand. See, friends, if I'm being completely honest, I'm more afraid of my personal ability to slip from the grip of God than I am Satan's ability to rip me from the grip of God. I don't know if I'm the only one, but it just feels like God's gonna protect me. I'm a dad. I know how much I care about my kids and how I'd protect them. And, and so I just feel like he's gonna, Satan's a puny gnat to God. But I feel like in my self-elevated mind, I have more power than I really do, and somehow I could wiggle my way out of God's hands. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you feel the same way, but for instance, when Gracie, my daughter, is in high school, and, uh, and some random dude comes to pick her up, um, and can we just be honest, Gracie's going to be a handful in high school, okay? Like, just pray for your guy, okay? There's a couple other girls in our, you know, car, Tatum, like, it's going to be a problem, okay? So Jeff, Brian, we need to pray, we need to do a dad's group, we need to pray right now. But anyways, um, but I love it. But, but if, if this guy comes to bring her on a date and he doesn't seem respectful and I just don't agree that he can take my daughter on a date, you better believe dude's driving away alone, okay? That's just gonna happen. But, but I can protect her from him, but I can't stop her from like sneaking out at night and going to see him. And I can't stop her from talking to him uh, in between class at school or texting him, right? I can protect her from other people, but I can't always protect her from herself. And I think unfortunately the same thing is true sometimes for us. It's a false thinking, but sometimes I think the same way about us and God. Like he's not gonna let Satan get too close. God's on the front porch cleaning a shotgun, okay? And it's loaded, right? But what about my ability to sneak out? What about our ability to hide and our ability to lie and to go behind his back? I mean, I know I can't be ripped from the grip of God, but honestly, can I slip from it? Is, can I let go and I get myself out of his grip? And Paul, to all those questions, goes, no, no, I'm confident. You, you, you can't. 
It's just, it's just the end of the story. There's nothing that could separate you from God. Satan can't rip you, and you can't slip from it. And so in verse 38 and 39, he just goes on this whole encompassing list of examples of things that still can't separate us. Not only all, all things in verse 35, he continues in verse 38 and 39. So he says, death can separate us. So cancer or car accidents, a sudden death or a slow death, uh, dying young or dying old, doesn't matter, can't separate you. Life, the things we spend our time on, our work, whether it's meaningful or it's miserable, or the people we spend our life with, our family and our friends, whether we love them, or there's a bunch of conflict, our routine, our schedule, our adventures, doesn't matter, none of that can separate us either. Angels, they're the most powerful beings outside of God. They can uh, give messages, they can frighten people, they can move stones, but he's saying they cannot separate you from the love of God. Rulers, this would be presidents, and, and kings and, and leaders and, and laws and, and the legal implications. You think about the Taliban, like the erratic Islamic regime in the Middle East and that there's Christians that are being persecuted and beheaded often, like daily, because of their faith in Jesus. And yet there's the moment where they're on their knees and the, the leaders are going, you can apostatize right now. You can say you don't believe in Jesus anymore. And they go, no, and their head's gone. And that's not gonna separate them either. Or you look to North Korea and these churches and these Christians that literally, can't be Christians, but they are, and they're gathering in these small places alone, hiding in secret with two or three of them, and they're just reading their Bibles and learning about Jesus, and that's not going to separate them no matter what law is enforced. You think of America. Like, we have so many religious freedoms, but we're kind of afraid, what's going to happen? What if we lose them? It doesn't matter. It's not going to separate us either from the love of God in Christ. He goes, the present, the things that are happening right now, the things right in front of you, they can't separate you. Then he goes, the future, the things ahead of you, the things that will be in your future, they can't separate you no matter what comes your way. Powers, Satan's army of darkness, all his schemes and temptations, he can't rip you either. He goes, height, the, ex the ecstasy, beautiful moments, the blessings we never want to forget. And he goes, they can't separate us. The depth, the lowest valleys, the depression, we just can't get out of bed. They can't separate you when we're stripped of everything. And he goes, anything else, just in case you all want to do a Bible study and brainstorm potential ideas of what could separate us. He goes, no, 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 no. Anything else, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. It's just the end of the story. That's how beautiful the gospel is. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. And why? Look at verse 37. It's kind of the key connection. Verse 37, he says, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. See, more than conquerors is a really unique phrase. It, it's kind of like uh, super conquerors. That's the, that's the language it would translate to. It's like this idea of like you've won by a landslide. Like it wasn't even a match, right? Um, but more than conquerors doesn't just communicate that you won. It also communicates how you win. So more than conquerors has this illustrating idea, that phrase in the Greek, that, that what was wielded against you to, to destroy you was then turned and wielded against your enemy to destroy them. So picture someone running up and swinging a bat at you, you catching it, and then grabbing that bat and beating them. Like that's the picture of more than conquerors. That's what he is communicating through this idea. And Paul says, no, 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 with all things, we're more than conquerors. So all things, meaning the tribulation, verse 35, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword, we're more than conquerors. All things in verse 38 and 39, death or life or angels or rulers or present to come or powers or, de or depth or height or anything else, we're more than conquerors. The things that are formed against us, God will ultimately use to against our enemies in giving us victory. 
Now, there's a story in the book of Esther, if you're familiar with it, and um, there's an evil dude named Haman, and, uh, and he wants to kill the Jews, and he particularly sets his gaze against a guy named Mordecai. Now, Mordecai is Esther's uncle. He's a great dude. We're pro-Mordecai, okay? We're not pro-Haman. He's not the good guy. Now, Haman goes, I want to kill Mordecai, and, um, and so he plans for it, and he has these gallows built, these, gall- this gall- these gallows built to be able to hang Haman on. Now, Esther saves the day. She's a queen. She's a boss. We love Esther, and then she reveals the plan about Haman and what he wanted to do to the Jews, and the king has Haman killed and hanged. Guess where he gets hanged? On the gallows that he built. That's more than conquerors. The thing that you formed against us is used against you, right? And this is the gospel, isn't it? Like Jesus was the first more than conqueror. The cross was the electric chair of that culture. Satan enters Judas's heart, and which ultimately leads to Judas betraying Jesus, which ultimately leads to Jesus dying on a Roman cross. And so this is what happens. And the cross was the ultimate epitome of defeat. It was the most terrible, painfully excruciating death, embarrassing death that you could think of. And Jesus suffered it. And with that cross, Satan's plan had come together. He's like, yes, I did it. I killed Satan. We talked about that last week. But that cross is now our sign of victory. It's our sign of hope and joy and salvation and peace and grace and love. It's like if we were to walk around with electric chairs as necklaces, that's that's how crazy the cross is that that's our symbol. That's a terrible symbol 2,000 years ago. Now it's amazing because Jesus is a more than conqueror. He used what was used to defeat people, to defeat Satan, to kill death, to conquer sin. That's our story. That's the gospel. So what does Paul mean in verse 37 when he says that we are more than conquerors through Christ? Not just that he was a more than conqueror, but that we are. That whatever comes our way, whatever is wielded against us, it can't win. Jesus will use it to defeat our enemies and grow us. It's reiterating Romans 8, 28, where we talked about a couple weeks ago, that God works all things together for good. And that good isn't clarity or a change of circumstance. That good is conformity to Jesus, that he's making us more like him. So you want to kill me? Do it. It'll just send me to the arms of my Savior. You, you want to persecute me? Fine. It'll just refine my faith. You want to make my life harder? That's okay. It'll make me yearn for heaven more. You want to hurt the people around me? That's okay. It'll just draw me to my knees in prayer and dependence. You want to you uh, trick me into sin? It'll just make me realize how deep and endless God's grace really is. You want to try and rip me from the grip of God? Go ahead and do it. It'll just show me and you how tight his grip really is. This is the crescendo of the greatest chapter in the Bible. We're more than conquerors because of Jesus. So not only can you not be ripped from the grip of God, not only can you slip from the grip of God, but every intention that would come to rip you or slip from the grip of God only sinks you deeper into his hands. You can't be separated from the love of God. I got my son Haddon here. You want to come up here? Come here, Bubba. No, come really quick. I want to show you something. Okay, this is Haddon. Haddon, say hi. Are you, are you a preacher? Here, hold on. I got to show him something. You want to show him something real quick? Okay. So remember yesterday? Do you remember yesterday when we were uh, walking in the parking lot and then we were going to the van? You remember that? And we was holding hands. And uh, you want to hold hands real quick? Come here. Let's hold hands. Here. Okay. Okay. So this is how we hold hands. You guys can see I have a little picture of it too. This is how we hold hands. Had and I, right? Now, uh, Haddon, try to run fast, fast, run fast that way. 
No, go that way. Go to mama. Try to go to mama. Can you, can you, can you pull, can you pull your hand away? <laughs> hey, hey, listen. Can you try and let go? Let go of daddy's hand. Let go. No, open your hand. Open your hand. You can't go anywhere, can you? You can't go anywhere. That's like what Jesus does for us, buddy. Isn't that cool? You want to go to mama? <laughs> Good job. You can give it up for Haddon. <laughs> but I want, I want that just to like ingrain in your head. Like just for us to understand like that's the way God's holding on to you. And so friends, listen, Christianity is not about you holding on to God. It's about God holding on to you. Our faith isn't in our grip strength. It's in his inseparable grip on us. The gospel isn't good advice to never let go of God. It's good news that he'll never let go of you. Amen? And so like the old hymn says, and we're just about to sing, when I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter should prevail, he will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He will hold me fast. Let's pray.